I want to invite you to open up your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. And if you do not have a Bible with you this morning, there should be some beside you, hopefully, or underneath the chair in front of you. And we refer to those as our pew Bibles. And you'll find this passage on page 942 of our pew Bible, 942. While you're finding that passage, uh, Phil did a great job of hitting a number of announcements. Just by way of reminder, our um, membership uh, meeting is happening in the fellowship hall during what we would call our Sunday school hour, but going into December, we enter into a resting month, and there's a blurb there in your announcements if you want to see that in the bulletin, but there will not be Sunday school for the month of December. So, Members will be here, but everyone else, you've got a little bit more time before cor- corporate service starts next Lord's Day. So just wanted to make that clarification. So this morning, as we continue our study through the letter to the Hebrews, we find ourselves now in chapter 3. And we're going to look at the first six verses of Hebrews chapter 3. Please follow along along as I read from God's word. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed We hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Hear the word of the Lord. Now we begin in chapter 3 with the word, therefore, which as we have been working through Scripture, learning how to interpret Scripture, that therefore helps us look back and, and, and note that what has come before is really important in understanding what's about to be laid out by the author. And so the therefore connects what came before, and what came before was uh, many things, but just right at the end of chapter 2, we saw the reminder that Jesus became like his brothers in every respect, meaning he came from heaven to earth, born fully man, The captain or founder of our salvation himself likewise partook of flesh and blood like us. And the author of this letter wants us to understand, just like the original recipients, this was for a very important purpose. He didn't want to just experience what it was like to be a human for human's sake, for that experience. No, He became like his brothers in every respect so that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
Because Jesus is the merciful and faithful high priest who has tasted death for everyone and is the source of our salvation, what we read in our passage this morning, Jesus merits our full consideration. So if you look at that first verse of chapter 3, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle, and the high priest of our confession. And so this morning, we are going to look at these six verses and we are going to consider. We're going to spend more and more time considering who this great apostle and high priest is and what he has accomplished for sinners like us. It begins, holy brothers, And that is in the plural, so you could say holy brothers, plural, or holy brothers and sisters, all who are united with Christ by faith, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. It is important for us, as we just begin looking at the first few words of this verse, to stop and contemplate how it is that sinful rebels like us could be referred to as holy brothers. Like, I I want us to just slow down enough to realize none of us deserve to have that title in and of ourselves, what we bring to the table. And to just think that, that this is God's holy word and those in Christ are, are given this amazing title, holy brothers. It, it should prompt us to ask how this could be possible. How is this so? And it is because of our union with the incarnate Son, whose perfect righteousness, if you have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, his perfect righteousness has been imputed to us. And so we have now a standing before God that without the work of Christ we would not have. In our sin, we we stand before God condemned, dirty, filthy rags, an unrighteousness. But because of Christ, we have been given a righteousness not our own or referred to as an alien righteousness. It's been imputed to us. And our position before God has been forever altered. If one has experienced justification through the work of Christ... You now stand no longer condemned, but justified. And so positionally, that can never alter. And this is the glorious news of what it means to be given the label holy brother or holy sister. You have now been given the right to stand positionally before God in a right relationship. Where in your sin, your trespasses, that was never an option. You stood before God wholly condemned, forever eternally separated, and his wrath would be upon you. But because of Christ's work, we get the title of holy brother or holy brothers and sisters. We are partakers of the heavenly calling because Jesus, in his condescension, partook of our earthly lot. What he has, we have. Where he is, we are spiritually. He is the Holy One of God, and because we are united with him, 
We are holy. The word holy is important as we work through the book of Hebrews and throughout the the whole New Testament. Both Paul and Peter designate the people of God as holy people, those who are set apart. The context of Hebrews gives the word an even richer significance. Holiness was an important feature of the Levitical system. And remember, the original recipients of this letter to the Hebrews were Hebrews. They were Jewish believers. And so they would have known very well the, 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 the term holy and holiness and how it relates to the, 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 the Levitical system. Holiness or being set apart could only come through sacrifice. They knew this well, which is to say holiness was not a human achievement. It wasn't something that you did to make yourself right. The whole Levitical system pointed to our great need for for a substitute, a sacrifice in our stead or in our place. And so the blood of animals in the Old Covenant was sprinkled on the bodies of the children of Israel, one example at Sinai, and thus they became externally holy. The blood of Christ in the new covenant is sprinkled upon the conscience of all of his people and gives them the confidence, not of what they have accomplished, but what Christ's blood atoning for their sins has accomplished and gives them confidence in coming to God. And so these holy people, they're set apart and united by faith with the one who sanctifies. And we saw this in chapter 2, Jesus is the one who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, God's people, have the same source or origin, which is God. And so, holy brothers and sisters, if you find yourself this morning saved by grace through faith in Christ, you you have received the title, holy brother and sister. Not because of what we have accomplished, But our gaze is pointed once again and always to the eternal Son of God who became flesh and suffered as fully human in our place. Now, just for a moment, the plural is important. And as we think about what it means to be a Christian, I think it is crucially important in the day and age that we live in, this individualistic mindset that we are so prone to kind of walk in or be pulled towards, when he says holy brothers, he is also reminding us that this is not this, that some, some sort of individualistic religion where you kind of go off by yourself and do things um, solo in this life. The, the reminder of this collective considering Jesus is for all brothers and sisters to remember and be reminded that if you've experienced salvation in Christ, you are part of the family of God. You have brothers and sisters. It is good for us to look around when we are singing corporately and remember, be reminded that that corporate singing is is ministry happening to one another. We are proclaiming these glorious truths We're reminding those sitting beside us, hey, brother and sister, this is what we have been called to. By grace, this is what we now experience collectively. 
And I think as we just came off of Thanksgiving and entering into this Advent season, to take our focus off of ourself and look around and see the needs of our brothers and sisters is such a good reminder. This is not some isolated faith. The Christian faith is a collective brother and sister coming together and doing life together. When you look at a local expression of the bride of Christ, we should always be reminded that this is a plurality of God's work amongst sinners who don't deserve it. And so there is a gratitude and a humility as we come together realizing that we're not here because we have earned it or somehow we are smarter and have kind of been clued in that this is where sanctification occurs within the body of Christ. No, no, no. We are simply obeying our master who says, do not neglect the, the public assembly of the saints. I have created it this way, ordained it this way. This is for your good. Not only your good, but those who are sitting around you's good, your brothers and sisters. If you find the holidays to be very sad because you're not experiencing um, a, a, a collective gathering of your blood family, I hope that you're encouraged by just hearing holy brothers, holy sisters, and recognizing that you're never alone. If you have been saved by grace, you are part of the household of faith. And I pray that we would respond accordingly and look out and see, is my brother or sister lonely because maybe they don't have a big bloodline family, uh, flesh and blood familial family. Maybe I need to be more mindful that they're actually part of my family. And not just while we have breath in our lungs here, but this is, this is holy brothers and sisters for, for all of eternity. The new heavens and the new earth in our resurrected bodies will be us continually being together with Christ as the head and we the body. I pray we would start living like that now. May the Holy Spirit impress these truths upon us and may we glory in the fact that we are called holy brothers and sisters, called to a heavenly calling. And all of this comes with this exhortation to consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, to meditate upon him, to ponder him, to attentively weigh his dignity and his authority, his glory. That is what we're called to do, consider. I want to read a couple of verses from Luke chapter 12. The same word is used here. Consider, verse 24, the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? If you haven't thought about that long, you need to consider that glorious truth of the, the, the care and compassion our Father has for us. That same kind of considering, we hear again, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If our Father cares about the lilies of the field and how they grow, how much more does he care about his children whom he sent his son to shed his blood for? Consider. 
Spend time thinking upon these things. Let them captivate your mind and your heart. If he cares that much about the birds of the air and the lilies, the flowers of the ground, how much more does he care for us whom he has redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? The second aspect of Jesus in which we are to consider is him as the high priest or prophet and high priest of our confession. It says apostle there, and I think that's an interesting word usage by the author. We've already been told that Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest. We see that this will be unpacked more as we work through Hebrews, but Thinking about him being greater than Aaron as a high priest, we read a verse from like Psalm 110 verse 4 and see, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now that high priest I want to set to the side because again we will return to it more fully as this letter develops. But here we have him referred to as apostle. And really, that is to help us understand his prophetic ministry. And we're going to see how the author ties in Jesus the Apostle and comparison to Moses. So, Apostle means one who is sent forth, sent forth of God, given authority as his ambassador. Well, this was exactly what God had called Moses to be, the the prophet, the great prophet, Jesus is the apostle, and and eclipsing all other apostles, he was the first apostle, the twelve being appointed by him. But I really want to root this in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Jesus being the greater apostle or prophet than Moses. Deuteronomy 18, 18. I will raise up for for them a prophet like you, God speaking to Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, in our study thus far, we have seen that Christ is superior to angels. And now the author shifts and is going to show that Christ is more superior than Moses. As we think about him being both apostle or prophet and high priest, this helps us see what differentiates his priestly and his prophetic office. I think this is helpful. Just think for a moment the function of priest and prophet. Christ fills the whole space between God and man. As prophet, Christ is God's representative, a representative between God and us. He he hears from God and he proclaims it to us. As priest, Christ is our representative before God. As apostle or prophet, he speaks to us from God. As our high priest, he speaks for us to God. I hope you see kind of that directional change that's happening. And praise be to God, we have a mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. We, in our sins, are in desperate need of a mediator between woe is us, sinful and unholy, and a righteous and holy and awesome God. 
when you start to understand the bigness and holiness and greatness of God and who we are, children of wrath, rebels, and you start to really gaze upon that chasm, then this mediator role, the prophet, priest, and king becomes of utmost importance and glory. And we see that it is Christ who fulfills those offices perfectly. So to demonstrate to the Hebrews how the Lord Jesus has the preeminence in all things, the the apostle instructs them, or the writer instructs them, that both offices, that of apostle or prophet, which was executed by Moses, and that of the high priest, which was communicated by Aaron, were fulfilled in Christ and Christ alone. And so this is the consideration that we are exhorted to to do, to be about as holy brothers and sisters. Now, as we continue to kind of work through this passage, I just want to remind us of where we started in Hebrews. It's what we have memorized, the first few verses now this month in verse 3, but but hear it again. This This is how revelation has been given by God to humanity. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. The revelation has come through the Son, which makes their, their, um, the realization that there is a superiority of the New Testament in which Christ has spoken fully and finally over that of the Old Testament revelation. And he, he unpacks in these first few verses um, just the, the glory and the superiority of the Son. He is the heir of all things through whom all things were created. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. He is the one who upholds all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, to hear these verses and now to move into chapter 3, the original recipients, the Jewish Christians, would have, would have responded probably something like this. First, they would say, wait, 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 but the Old Testament revelation, we are told, came through angels. And again, our author has spent time showing them that the Lord Jesus is superior to angels. And then hearing as this unfolds, well, hold on, wait a second. The Old Testament revelation came through Moses. And the author would be reminding them, oh, but, but the Lord Jesus Christ is far superior to Moses. And I, I want to show you that reality. And so the author of Hebrews wants to show the superiority of Jesus over even Moses, who was the pinnacle. When you think about the prophet of old, the one who did so much for the household of God, as we will see in a moment, to, to, to even fathom that the Lord Jesus was elevated or superior to Moses was, was something that they needed to comprehend and something that they needed to grasp in order to, to sustain or continue on holding holding. Uh, holding on, as we're told in this passage, holding fast their confidence and their boasting in hope. Okay, so when we look at verse 2, for example, 
we're going to see the author first hold up Moses and the Lord Jesus. And and in verse 2, he's going to show how they were both faithful. He's going to show how Jesus is like Moses. This is not a a campaign to make... um, make Moses seem like he's insignificant or, or um, unimportant to God's plan of redemption. Not at all. Where the author begins in, in showing the supremacy of Christ is actually holding forth both Moses and Jesus as being examples of faithfulness. He tells us in verse 2, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. The introduction of the faithfulness of Moses into this argument at this point may seem strange to our ears, but again, this was very important for Jewish believers who, remember, this was a time where they were experiencing persecution, oppression. Because of their faith, their their allegiance to Christ there was much of this life that they no longer got to experience or um, be a part of where they once were part of of Judaism and and all that went into the rites and rituals. Coming to faith in Christ altered their standing before uh, the Jews, before their friends, before family members. This was a, a huge deal. And many of them were looking at what they were presently experiencing and thinking, man, it, it was pretty good where we used to be. Start looking back to what they used to be a part of and forgetting or not fully understanding what they have now. So the original audience were, were struggling with present circumstances and beginning to long for the shadow when they had the substance. They were tempted to go back to the symbols of the Old Testament rather than the reality that they experienced in Christ. There were many promises made of old. They were starting to go back to just being in the, the, the time of promise rather than in the time of fulfillment. There was in the old preparation and in Christ culmination. And the author is trying to help them understand that what they are experiencing in Christ now is so much better. The word better is this ongoing theme throughout Hebrews. What we have in the new covenant is so much better to the old. The promises find their fulfillment. The shadows find their substance. Brothers and sisters, consider Jesus. It is impossible to think about the old covenant and Judaism without considering Moses. God used Moses to liberate his people in the Exodus, which really is kind of the definitive example for for the Jews of how God acts on behalf of his people, the deliverance, the redemption. God also used Moses to, to deliver the law to Israel. The Old Covenant is basically the legacy of Moses' ministry to the people of Israel. And so, again, there's not a discrediting to the greatness of Moses. He was, and the author is saying here, he was faithful. He was a faithful servant. This was evidenced all throughout Exodus with his reverence for God, his earnest desire to see God's favor, to experience God's favor, his preferring the glory of God over his own glory, 
And we are told that he was meek. He was meek before men. Moses was a great example. He was faithful. And then we get to verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. And so he moves from helping us see that they were both faithful, and that is how they are alike, so to speak, to moving to verse 3 to helping the Jewish believers understand the superiority of Christ, who is counted worthy of more glory than Moses. It is argued here, the builder of a house is entitled to more honor than the building. I think that is pretty simple when we just look at physical structures. We have some home builders here in our congregation. They do amazing work. If you know that they have built a house and you take a tour of that property, you gaze upon the craftsmanship, and it's a beautiful house, but, but really the honor is given to the one who built it. And that's what the author is trying to get at here in this first portion of giving us this example of of construction, of of building a house. Um, We see in this passage that the house, though, this is where there's a shift, is actually referring to a living structure. So we can understand the concept of a builder building a physical house and the builder getting the honor for such great craftsmanship. But the author is using this as kind of like a segue to help kind of open up their understanding to this type of house that he's referring to. This is This is a living structure, and we're talking about God's people making or creating or being this this house. So Moses was faithful in all of God's house, but here's, here's where we start to see the contrast. Moses was not the founder of the Israelites, but simply a member of it. He came to the people who were already the Lord's by covenant relationship. He came to be a servant, and he was faithful in the tasks that God had given him. The apostle of our confession, the Lord Jesus Christ, is far superior. Christ is the builder of a family, and Moses is simply a member of the family. Therefore, and you you just kind of think about the logic, the one who built the house is the one who receives the most honor. Moses was just part of what was built. He was welcomed in by grace and by faith believed, and he was part of the house. Jesus, the apostle of our confession, is the one who built the house. Therefore, he must be counted worthy of more honor and glory. Moses did not make men and women children of God, but Christ does. Christ takes us or those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, and he creates a new creation. We read in Ephesians 2.10 this glorious truth, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. He is the master builder. He is the one who gets the glory for what he has created. And I I think it's good to just pause here for a moment. If you have been brought up in a theology where you grab hold of Christ, 
you are the one who makes the decision. Just think about what's being described here. Do two by four and lumber and bricks decide one day that they want to be part of this grand house? We would just kind of jokingly laugh and say, of course not. Likewise, if you are dead in your trespasses and sins, there is nothing you do that makes you alive in Christ. It is a work of God. And right here we see the apostle of our great confession. He is the builder. He is the one who calls those who are dead. Come forth. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, we are brought to life. Regeneration, the new birth. And we come and we receive him by faith. Repent of our sins. And are baptized as believers in Christ. But that is all the work of the builder. And so who gets all the glory for our salvation? It is God and God alone. That is the one of the, the parts of the, the Reformations, one of the solas, sola deo gloria. It is only God who gets glory for building a house. And we are, t- we're told in this passage, we are the house if you are in Christ. Verse four, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And so if you are not yet convinced, the original recipients, us who are hearing it today, all things, not, not just houses, not even just a, 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 a um, redemptive body of believers, how great and amazing that is, but we are told exhaustively all things are built by God. Now, thinking about Moses and how great and how faithful he was, And what the author is trying to drive at here, this apostle and high priest of our confession, not only is he the one who who laid down his life, but but the author is trying to help us see this this man is actually the God-man. And this apostle is not just merely human. He is 100% human and 100% God. He is God. The deity of Christ is actually, you may think maybe covertly, is, is, is actually putting, being put forth on the forefront by the Holy Spirit and bringing even higher glory to Christ. Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And we serve the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And here, the eternal Son of God is being highlighted, His deity, in that all things are built by God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Psalm 102, when thinking about the created, the Creator, this was in chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. This psalm was quoted. If you remember, we were here several Lord's Days ago, when we think about Christ being the creator, this is what was said in Psalm 102. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. 
They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. This is referencing the eternal son of God. He is the one who created all things. The builder of all things is God. And so without argument, Christ is greater than Moses. Verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Verse 5 highlights Moses' place of rank and honor as a servant, key word here, in all God's house. He was a servant in all God's house. In fact, this verse echoes God's own words concerning Moses that we find in Numbers chapter 12. He was, he was a faithful servant and an abled man in God's household. His servant ministry, we're told in verse 5, was to point forward to the things, testifying to the things that were to be spoken later. Now, as we gaze upon this faithful servant Moses, we're told, inspired by the Spirit, that what he was about in his ministry in God's house was to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Now, for us, this may just kind of come in one ear and go out the other. This was a word much needed by the Jewish believers receiving this letter. The revelation of Christianity was not clashing with the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, but when understood properly, all in the old was anticipating what was to come in the new. Think of it this way. This is a quote from Augustine. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. This famous statement expresses those things that were revealed in the background of the Old Testament pointing forward in time. Think of it this way. Moses' ministry as a faithful servant in God's house was like a big sign pointing in one direction. And it was all pointing to the one who would come and fulfill the office of apostle or prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as a servant, Moses ordered all things. Think about the Pentateuch, all that we read of God's law, how they are to worship, the typical worship of the house, all of this so that they may both be a witness and a pledge of that which would afterwards be more fully and finally exhibited through the gospel, through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it was Christ who said in John's gospel, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Or in Luke chapter 24, Jesus, walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, if you remember that scene, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. All the Old Testament, through its patterns, promises, and prophecies, point to the coming Messiah. R.T. France would say it like this, the whole of the Old Testament 
is gathered up in Christ. Original recipients, don't miss this. Consider us today. Consider the apostle and great high priest of our confession. Consider Jesus. If you are prone to look at what you see in the Old Testament as like, man, that is rich and, and that kind of religious life just seems to be more uh, tangible and something that I would like to be a part of, you may go, that's really strange, but there is a whole movement of professing believers who are looking to Old Testament rituals and sacrifices and ceremonies and thinking, if we incorporate that, we will have a more full experience of religion, a, a, form, a, full, a more full experience of what it means to be part of God's family. The, the original recipients were, were tempted to do the same thing. They were looking, and what they saw with their physical eyes around them seemed to be more appealing with what they used to experience. And now, just example of New Testament believers in the first century, there wasn't a lot of money. There, there was a lot of persecution. They would meet in kind of little houses, little rooms with dim lighting when the, the Jews were still experiencing, this was when the temple was still alive and active during this time, before it was destroyed in AD 70, they were still experiencing the, the full benefits, I guess, of, of being a Jew. All that went into it made you feel like you were really part of something. And, and here, and what we need to hear is to see once again who Jesus really is, what we really have in Christ, all of the benefits. We walk by faith not by sight. We are tempted in the flesh, sight, to see things on this earth, whether it be religious activities or just things that seem to bring more satisfaction to what we desire and, and run after those things, rather than gazing upon with our spiritual eyes all that we have in our apostle and high priest. All that we have in our heavenly calling, holy brothers and sisters, consider Jesus. Amen. Verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So remember, Moses was a faithful servant in God's house. Here we see Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Huge contrast made between a servant in God's house and a son over God's house. Now, if you missed it earlier, the house plainly defined here in verse 6, we, we are his house. It is a spiritual house made up of believers in Christ. The Apostle Peter refers to this spiritual house, us, as living stones. 1 Peter 2.5, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We in Christ are living stones being built up 
as a spiritual house. Now, in our verse this morning, we have a very important word, if. A conditional clause put in there. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. For the Jewish believers, it was particularly hard to harmonize two facts together. These were the two facts. A Messiah came and entered into glory, and the people who belonged to the Messiah left in sorrow and shame and suffering below. To harmonize those realities, you've told me of this suffering servant who condescended but then was exalted and is at the right hand of the Father, and the people who belong to that Messiah are left to still experience sorrow and suffering and shame in this life. They were always in danger of forsaking the invisible, Christ in heaven, our heavenly calling, with the visible, Judaism on earth. And as chapter 3 unfolds, as the following analysis of Israel's wilderness experience through the lens of Psalm 95, which we will, Lord willing, see in the coming weeks, it will show that people who experienced that in the Old Testament, people could belong to a community that experiences God's acts of power and mercy and yet still fail to respond in persevering faith. So this is something that's going to be built throughout the book of Hebrews, but this if is really important here because we're going to see as we look back into Old Testament examples and for the original recipients, Jewish believers would, would know this well. There were some who experienced all that God did with the people of Israel. Think of the plagues in Egypt and the deliverance and the Red Sea experience, all of that. They experienced God's blessing and grace. They were in it and around it, yet they did not persevere in faith. And so, as Moses is being set before them and Christ being much superior to Moses, it is important for them to hear, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. We are his house if. Now, here's a question. Is the author casting doubt on the certainty of eternal salvation available in Christ? Is he poking holes in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints? Eternal, eternal security. We will see, and I will submit to you that that is not the case, but throughout the letter to the Hebrews, the author warns against failing to persevere in the faith. Believers constitute the household of God, which is to say that the church is made up of persevering believers who have authentic biblical faith. Now, hear me very clearly. Our work neither saves us nor keeps us. Only Christ can save us. We must hold, we're told in this passage, we must hold on to our confidence and retain our boast in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you follow the logic, we are to consider the great apostle and high priest of our confession. 
Now at the end of this passage, he's saying, you need to hold on. Hold on to the confidence. What confidence? Confidence in ourselves? Boasting in ourselves? Not at all. The the whole passage has been this flow to show you the superiority of Christ and what he has done. So we hold on to, our confidence is in a person, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. When someone says, I have faith, you would want to ask them, what is your faith in? Your faith could be in a whole host of things. If it is not in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not biblical faith. So a lot of people can say, well, yeah, I have faith. And unless you really press them, we live in the Bible Belt, let me remind you. I know you guys are all aware of that. But a lot of our evangelism is actually going to a lot of people who think that they have faith and actually don't know Jesus. And so there's a deconstruction that actually needs to happen in order to help them understand that they're in need of the gospel. And so we need to be encouraged that our interactions with people, we need need to be encouraged not to assume that when they say a generic, yeah, I, I believe in God, that they actually understand the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and have truly considered our great apostle and high priest of our confession. What do they actually mean? What do you actually mean as you sit here today saying, yeah, I believe in something. I believe in God. Do you actually understand that without the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, you would spend eternity in hell experiencing the full wrath of God because that is what is due you? Without him standing in your place, being the propitiation of God's wrath for us, you would have no hope. You would be boasting in in some other hope because the only hope that we boast in is one died in our place and he didn't stay dead, but on the third day, God raised him from the dead, resurrected to new life, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father where right now he is interceding on our behalf. If that's where your confidence and hope lies, then you should not be concerned about this this if, this condition that's laid before us. Because what what, what brings perseverance of the saints is understanding who holds you tight. You don't hold yourself in good standing with God. Christ, by grace, holds his own and will never let them go. No one will snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and the Father are one. So you can think of it this way. Who's being addressed here? There are believers, there are professing believers, and there are unbelievers. And John Stott would say this. He was quoted in Sunday school. He's getting another one here in our corporate worship. The goal of preaching is to comfort the distressed and disturb the comfortable. I think that's really good. Comfort the disturbed. If there are some who believe in Christ but yet doubt their security, you need to be con- you need to be comforted. The if should not scare you if you know who is holding you. So to the believer, what you need to hear this morning is to continue on. This is the comfort to the disturbed, to hold fast to our confidence 
and our boast and boast in our hope. You, you look to Christ, you consider him. To the professing believer, what I mean by professing believer is they say a lot out of their mouth, but we're not actually sure if they have biblical faith, if there's actually fruit that testifies or validates what they say. So there are many professing believers, and for the professing believer, this, this passage is to either confirm that yes, their hope is in the right place, their confidence is in the right place, or to challenge, to challenge whether or not their standing before God is actually legitimate in Christ. So to disturb the comfortable. So original recipients, applicable to us. There are many who attend church, somewhat involved, but are thinking about turning back. The things of this world, maybe the things of Judaism, seem so appealing they want to go back. It will either be used by the Spirit to awaken them and let them know that they can't stay in this middle ground or reveal where their allegiance really is. Where does their confidence lie and where is their hope? What tends to happen with this group of people, and I think this is what's happening with the people who are receiving this letter, why did they need this at this particular time? What tends to happen when affliction arises, when things don't go a person's way, and their whole world starts to fall apart, they ask the question, why? And if their why is not rooted in the sovereignty and goodness of God, then that why and the answer to the why can lead them down a road where the things that they used to maybe have, the things that they used to experience, begins to, to glisten a little bit more, be, become more attractive, and they're, they're drawn towards of old or things of the flesh, Whatever it may be, they're looking for something outside of our true hope, which is Christ Jesus. And it really just reveals that there never was any true foundation, proving that they never really believed. When the rubber meets the road, so to speak, what is in the heart is, is laid bare. And so for the believer, it is to continue to press on, to encourage the professing believer to confirm or to challenge, and the unbeliever, we pray, to convict. To sit before the word this morning and go, if I am honest with myself, I am not holy. In my own standing, my own sinful nature, and I know that, it, that I don't have Christ who is perfect and righteous. I can clearly say that I, I am not part of that, that title of holy brother or sister. It is to convict that that great apostle and high priest, that, that confession of Jesus is not my confession. I actually like to be on the seat of my own throne. You may talk about God's kingdom, but I'm actually more interested in my little kingdom. What's going to make me most happy? If that reality is true, if you're honest enough to say, my confidence and my hope is tied more to my career, my relationships, my advancement, whatever the case may be, and not to the Lord Jesus, I, I'm not considering him when I'm thinking of 
confidence and hope in this life. I just want to help you this morning understand that that confidence and that hope, whatever you have built it upon, the Bible calls that shifting sand. It is not a firm foundation. And it may be standing somewhat kind of a balancing act of an act right now, this deck of cards, but it will fall. It will eventually fall. And if you're starting to see cracks in it now, it is God's grace that he is revealing to you your great need of a savior where true confidence and true hope, a firm foundation lies. It is only and solely in the Lord Jesus Christ. So believers, I pray that you would continue on, not letting the if scare you, but for professing believers, that, that condition, that condition should scare you. It should either confirm or challenge you. And for the unbeliever, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Proof of our belonging to the house of Christ is that we remain steadfast to him to the end of our pilgrimage here on earth. I want to end with John chapter 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let us pray. Father, I, I pray this morning that you would help us to truly consider Jesus. Father, what we just heard in that last passage, there is freedom found solely in Christ. And we desperately long and look for that freedom in all different ways, people, and things. Father, may we have eyes to see the kingdom of God and where true freedom, where we were once slaves to sin, in bondage to the fear of death, may we see that in Christ there is liberation. As the Jews looked back and saw what, what you did through, through Moses in delivering the people out of Egypt, that pales in comparison to what Christ has done for sinners. Those who were, were captive, you have, by the work of Christ, led the captives free, led them out into the promised land. Father, may that overwhelm us this morning. May, may there be a confidence and a hope like never before, a firm foundation built upon Christ and Christ alone. And may we rejoice that he truly is the apostle and high priest of our confession to realize that we are holy brothers and sisters called to a heavenly calling because of the grace that you have lavished on us through Christ your Son. And for those who are far off, may this be the day of salvation, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.